When I was attending uh, Cal State University at Fullerton, one of the most popular classes, uh, believe it or not, was a course entitled A Survey of the New Testament. And before you get all confused trying to figure out why that is, there are three very simple reasons why it was one of the most favorite courses that was taken at the, on the campus, and that was, number one, the professor never gave any homework. That was the first reason. The second reason was the professor never gave out any tests. And the third reason was the professor never required that we read a book or write a paper. So you can see why it became one of the most popular courses on the, on the campus. And in fact, for 10 years in a row or 20 semesters, the entire grade was based on a final examination. And the final exam was always this one question. Discuss the wanderings and missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Pretty simple. We figured that, hey, if we didn't have to study, we didn't have a test, we didn't have to read any books, we didn't have to write any papers, the least we could do is throughout the course come up with some some explanation for the uh, the wanderings, the journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so that's what we basically set out to do. Well, as you can imagine, it was during the fall semester, and most of the varsity football team was uh, enrolled in that course. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, we had one guy that, that uh, was a middle linebacker. His name was Meathead. And uh, Me- Meathead and I sat together. And Meathead, if you can figure out why, he didn't have a whole lot going for him upstairs. But, man, he could stick a running back and put him back a couple of yards. So we sat together, and Meathead asked, hey, he said, hey, would you mind helping me out and help me get ready for this thing? Because it's the only thing in our whole grades based on it. So we kind of studied together, and we knew what the question was going to be. It never changed 20 straight semesters in a row. It was the same question. So we studied, and we studied about the journey and the wanderings of the Apostle Paul. So we got in there for the final exam, and if you've ever been in a college auditorium that seats as many people as this particular course did under the circumstances, uh, there was probably three, 400 people in it and, it, and it sat like an amphitheater, and so it sat down, and you went down, and the professor was down in the front, and, the, and the, uh, his desk was there, and it kind of worked its way back. Well, if you got there late, you got the last seats. Not like church, where if you get there late, you got to sit up in the front. It was a little different situation. So he got there late, and, uh, and it was all filled. The auditorium was all filled up, so we were sitting way in the back, and Meathead I and sat, we sat down together, and we were ready to go. And the professor came in, and if you've ever been in a college course like that, they have these blue exam books that they have the question on it, and then they pass them out. We thought, well, it's kind of ridiculous that he's passing around these books because everybody knew what the question was. It hasn't changed in 20 times, and he knew we knew, so it was like, well, this is kind of silly to do this, but he started to pass them out. Well, and as he began to pass them out, a crescendo of oohs and ahs and moans and groans began to ripple back up to the, the steps. It was like, oh, oh, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And we opened up the little blue book, and the question was no longer discuss the wanderings and missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. The question became, criticize the Sermon on the Mount. Well, at that particular time, I didn't know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, and I, couldn't, I didn't know who gave it, and I couldn't figure out why anybody wanted to preach sitting on a horse. So... <laughs> So we we were in we were in we were in a lot of trouble, and uh, and as you can imagine, we felt like we got ripped off. And uh, so one by one, everyone that was sitting up to the front, all the way to the back, just started to walk up, and they just slammed the notebook down on the desk, and they walked out of the room, and it kind of filtered its way all the way to the back. And it was just Meathead and I were the only two sitting in the room, and I look over, and Meathead's writing like crazy. And there's no one else in the whole room. And he's writing, he's writing away, man. It's like sweat pouring off his head. And he's just writing, he's writing. And I'm trying to figure out, what in the world is he writing? So I got frustrated, and I took my book down. I just handed it to the professor, and uh, I leave. Well, a couple hours later, I peek back in, and Meathead's still writing. I see him up there, and the professor's just sitting there, and he's watching him write, and he's writing away, and there's sweat pouring all over him. And uh, so at the end of three hours, time was up. It was time to grade the test, and it wasn't going to be hard for him to do it because, every, every, you know, you could figure out what this pile was going to get. So we waited around. I said, man, I, you know, Meathead was so engaged in what he was doing that I didn't have a chance to ask him what he was doing. It wouldn't, well, it wouldn't have been right to do, of course, <laughs> during the middle of the test. So we came back later, and on this desk is this pile of exams like this, and it had F on every one of them. And then the other one was Meatheads, and it was all here by itself, and it had A-plus on it. How in the world did Meathead pull this off, right? So I walked over to him and said, Meathead, how would you get an A-plus? He goes, I don't know. So what did you write? And he opened it up, and he said, who am I to criticize the Sermon on the Mount? What I'd like to discuss are the wanderings of the Apostle Paul. And he did it. 
you know, in in in. Now you know what what's, what just drives me crazy is every time I think about that story, there's it reminds me that there's a radical way in which to view life that is seen by very few people. So the majority of people couldn't see anything good in the situation. And here was Meathead, who saw something totally different. He had a totally different perspective of life than the rest of us did. You know, and it's funny because I think about that a lot, because it's true of most of us. There are very few of us who look at life from a radical position and a different point of view. We kind of follow into the majority of thinkers. And uh, the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Romans, he talked about that we should have a different mind, that we shouldn't be conformed to this world, but that we should be transformed. And he was talking about being conformed from the standpoint of being poured into the mold of the majority or having a mindset that's common to most people. And he's saying, you know what, we shouldn't be conformed and have that mindset that the majority of people have, but we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. See, the problem is transformation is nothing short of a miracle. See, it's not a matter of us choosing, and here's where the rub is. See, a lot of us get to the point where we listen to these um, uh, positive thinkers and the positive confession and all that type of movement, and they would have you to believe that for you to look at life differently, it's a matter of just choice. You can simply choose to look at the glasses half empty, or you can simply choose to look at the glasses half full, that it's a matter of your own personal choice. Well, that may be true as far as our attitudes are concerned, but that's not the transformation that the Bible teaches. Because the transformation that the Bible teaches is nothing short of a miracle of God. See, that transformation is where God takes an old mind that thinks like the majority, that's darkened in its understanding of the things of God, it takes that old mind and just eradicates it and replaces it with a brand new mind. See, God is, a, is the great physician. Jesus Christ is known as the great physician. And long before we ever heard of heart transplants, God's been doing it a lot longer. And long before we would ever consider a mind transplant, God's been doing it for a long time. See, he's been taking old minds that aren't working the right way, and he's been replacing it with a new one. And that's this transformation that takes place. It's a miracle of God. And it begins the day that you come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. You can't do it. It's not a perspective that you can try to employ on your own. You can't say, you know what, I'm tired of looking at life negatively. I'm tired of looking at life like everybody else. I think I'm going to look at it differently. I'm going to view life differently. No, you can't do it God's way that way. The only way you do it is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and allowing Him to live His life through you, to think through you, to transform your mind and to make it into something that God intends it to be. The reason that I say that is because when, when Solomon deals with us as, ta- as far as wisdom is concerned, it's not a matter of us, let's look at life differently on our own, and in our own power, in our own way. No, see, our lives, the way that our minds work, the transformation takes place with the steady ingestion of the Word of God. If you want to know why your mind doesn't see things the way that the Bible says that it should, it's because, number one, you may have never put your faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ, and this book doesn't make any sense to you at all. I mean, you read it and go, I don't understand anything that's in here. That's the first clue that you've never come to a relationship with the God of the universe by trusting in Christ. But the second thing is you may read it and say, you know, this is interesting to me, but I'm not sure I understand it completely. And you get frustrated and you set it aside. The problem with that is that God doesn't have an opportunity to transform your mind because he wants to do it through the word of God. See, it says we're supposed to be like newborn babes and we long for the pure milk of the Word that in it we may grow in respect to our salvation. There's a reason that many of us haven't grown spiritually and that's because we haven't taken the time to read what God has to say. And the only way He can transform your mind is to spend time in His Word and begin to take it in and soak it in and it becomes a part of your person and your mind miraculously is transformed because of it. We want to do it the easy way. We want to, hey, give me a, a quick one, two, three on how I can transform my mind or look at life differently. How can I see it like God wants me to see it instead of like everybody else is seeing it? He said it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in an easy fashion. In fact, what we're going to talk about are some tough things that happen so that God can transform our mind. That's what Solomon had to say as far as wisdom. And he also let us know that, you know what, human wisdom and understanding isn't going to get us very far. Looking at life differently or thinking we can look at it the way we want is not going to get you very far. In fact, if you look at the wisdom and the knowledge that Solomon had from an earthly perspective, the guy was a, he was a, he was a great architect. 
He was a tremendous construction. He was, he was a builder. He was, a, uh, he was an administrator. He was a financial whiz. All of those things, this guy could hold his own with anybody that you can think of. But you know what? That human wisdom did not prevent him from falling morally and spiritually. Do you realize that? You know, have you ever stopped to think, you go, man, you know, the Bible tells us that there was no one wiser than Solomon in all the earth. Well, if he was so wise, then how did he fall spiritually? How did he fall morally? How did he fall ethically if he was so wise? Because he had the wisdom of the world. He had the, he had the, he had the means to be able to conduct himself in, on this earth on the horizontal basis. But he didn't have the wisdom that comes from up above. And that's the wisdom of God that God gives to anyone who asks for it. And he gives it liberally and he doesn't criticize us for not knowing it. But he looks forward to us doing it. So what we're going to take a look at is the value of wisdom and how it can transform our minds so that we can start to think as a minority of people, a very handful of people on this earth think. And that's to see life from God's perspective, from the vertical and not from the horizontal. And that's what Solomon's teaching us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. And uh, if you don't have it, look on with somebody sitting next to you because the only way that we're going to go through this transformation that we're talking about is by looking into the Word of God. What the Bible has to say about the value of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 Uh, About three weeks ago, we started to take a look at this passage, and we'll pick up where we left off and move on from there. But uh, Ecclesiastes 7, starting with verse 1, we read this, that a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, but when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosoms of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? Let's ask God to bless our time. Our Father, there are many of us who come here this morning with uh, just that mindset. We're going through some tough times and we can't see any value to it. We don't see anything good coming out of it. And we look at it and we ask the questions, why can't things be like they used to be? Why am I where I'm at and why am I going through what I'm going through? And God, I just pray that if there's anyone who has that question in their heart this morning, that the, the Word of God, Your Word, can just penetrate and help them to see the value in the situation that they're in and the value of Your wisdom as we apply it to our lives. And we just thank You and we praise You for the results as we apply Your Word that we can look forward to change and a change that's always for the better. And we just thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Solomon's going to give us seven, seven advantages to godly wisdom. And the first thing that we see as far as godly wisdom is that it evaluates the circumstances of life from God's point of view. It's not necessarily looking at it in our own frame of mind and saying, Boy, you know what? I'm going to decide to look at this a little differently. I'm going to decide to look at this as something good. Now, we may come to that conclusion, but the only way that you're going to see that that's true is if you come to understand what the Bible is teaching and then begin to concur or agree with God that what He's saying is right. See, this isn't a unique uh, formula that we're going to come up with. God is saying, this is good and this is why it's good. And as you study my word and you see how many examples and illustrations that I, that I bring to you, you'll find out that this really is good. So wisdom evaluates the circumstance of life from God's point of view. And the first thing in, in verse 1 is that it helps us see what is really important. He says, a good name is better than good, good ointment. A good name is better than good ointment. Not that good ointment is not good because it sure can be good, but there's something better than that. And that is that God says that we need to start to look at the inner person more so than the outer frame. We are a society that's hung up on the external, and God's saying, hey, I don't get hung up on the external. In 1 Samuel 16, 6, he says, Then it came about when they entered that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
Do you know why he thought that? God answers it and he says, he said, hey, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, Samuel was guilty, and here was a a person who was a man of God. He was as guilty as the rest of us in falling into the trap of looking at the external and saying, man, this guy's a good-looking guy, he'd make a good king, and he's tall, he's rugged, and he's perfect. Now, anybody that's been involved in athletics realizes the danger in looking at, at the external and saying, here's a specimen. Here is a guy that this is it, man, 6'8", 295, you know, he's got all the physical gifts, but there's one thing that he lacks, and anybody who's played any athletics knows what it is, and that's he lacks guts. That's what the coach used to call intestinal fortitude. He lacks guts. He lacks strength, the inner quality. He lacks what it takes. He gets hit, and he's out of there, you know, and what he's saying is true. Because we look at the external and say, if there's anybody that can make it, this person can make it. And God goes, hey, wait a minute. Don't get so carried away with the external. Let's start looking at the inner person. See, wisdom, God's wisdom, helps us to evaluate life from God's point of view where he looks at the inner quality of a person and says, hey, this person's got what it takes. See, basically it boils down to this. It boils down to being rather than doing. It boils down to being rather than achieving. It boils down to being rather than obtaining. That's what it boils down to. It boils down to being something in the sight of God that's more precious than your achievements, than the things that you obtain, uh, than your accomplishments, and anything you can think of. It's being right before God. See, I guess the question is, you stop and think about it, it's like one guy said, he goes, hey, you've got to make sure that the tongue of your mouth and the tongue of your shoe are heading in the same direction. And I like that. Because it's, it helps me visually to picture what God is saying. Hey, man, let's, let's start walking the walk and just not talking the talk. How are you guarding your reputation? How are you guarding your reputation? Because that's a good name. is better than a good ointment. What do other people have to say about you and how you treat your family and how you uh, conduct your business dealings and how you respond to your neighbors when there is a time of need? See, how are other people looking at your life and saying, hey, this is what I see in that person? Or they see this the facade. Everything looks good up front, but you're not being anything. See, that's what God is trying to help us to see, that that's the case, that uh, it helps to recognize what was really important in life. And God says that what we are inside is much more important than what we look like on the outside. Number two is he also tells us that it, it helps us to realize the value of things like sorrow and death. See, God's wisdom helps us to see that, you know what, there's value in sorrow and death. I don't know if you've ever thought, stopped to think about it too terribly much, but Paul had the best line of all. He says, you know what? For me, he was in prison at the time that he wrote it. There was an impending persecution and maybe an execution in his future. And he said, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, it's better for me to die because then I'll be with Christ. But then I'm pressed between a rock and a hard place because you have needs and I'd like to hang around and help you meet your needs. So I'm really stuck. I'm caught between a hard decision to make. I'd rather die to be with Christ. And on the other hand, I'd rather be here to help you. So I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. Can I ask you a question? This is, real, this is a personal question, but it's one that each one of us have to answer individually. And I'll tell you that the answer that you give will be a reflection on your walk with the Lord. Number one, it will indicate whether you even have one. And number two, it will indicate what you find as a priority in your life. But do you believe the greatest thing can happen to you is the day that you die? Do you really believe that? Or are you struggling with it? See, if you can shake your, nod your head and say, you know what, I can't think of anything better than the day that I die. I can't think of an accomplishment. I can't think of a, a possession. I can't think of a job. I can't think of, uh, of a relationship. I can't think of anything that's going to be better for me than the day that I die. If you can say that, then you know what Solomon's talking about. And the wisdom of God is such that, you know what, folks, there's never going to be anything better you can look forward to than the day that you can see your maker face to face. And he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. There'll be nothing better than that. See, I like what one man, Charles Bridges, writes this. He said, is not the day that will deliver us from sin and sorrow far better than the day that brought us into them? said, it's better to face the joys of heaven 
than the sorrows of earth. Do you believe that? Man, that's some... That's, I mean, and you, and you go, but you know what? You think the world around us believes that? You think if you don't have any hope, if you don't know where you're going when you're dead, that you're walking around saying, hey, you know what? Worst thing can happen to me is that they'd kill me for sharing Christ with people, and that's the best thing because then I'll be with them face to face. So I look at it, I'm in a no-lose position. This is wonderful. You talk to people around you who have never come to faith in Christ, that don't know what happened to them when, when, when they die. They're not sure. They have no hope. They don't know where, where life's heading. And you say, hey, aren't you excited about the day you're going to die? Uh, excuse me, I don't think so. You know what I mean? See, but the, see, godly wisdom helps us realize that. But how do, you, how do you come to that? Through the Word of God. The promises of God are made known over and over again what happens to a person that's come to faith in Christ when they die. Absent from the body, Paul says, present with the Lord. Hey, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in also, also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you so. But because it is, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do, I'm going to come back for you and receive you once again. About the dead, I don't want you to be uninformed, brother. I want you to know what's going on. That the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are living will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be caught up and we'll be with them in the air. Oh man, the Word of God has promises over and over again on what's going to happen the day you and I die. That's an exciting thing. If you see the wisdom of God. And if you don't, there's nothing exciting about it. In fact, it's pretty scary actually, isn't it? But the good news is that that can change at any moment. It can change at the moment that you say, I do to God. And you can just trust Him and believe in Him. See, godly wisdom helps us realize the value of things like uh, sorrow and death. A couple weeks ago, there was an article in the Orange County Register. I thought it was incredibly uh, profound as far as it relates to what the Bible teaches. It was an article that was in the Register and it had to do with people who were children of terminally ill parents. Anyone see that? Anybody see that at all? Listen to this quote. Listen to what it says. And the point is that death gives you a perspective and wisdom on life that you don't have if you're not facing death. It's amazing how wisely those who are about to die utilize the time that they have left. If you knew you are going to die in three weeks, what would you do differently today? Facing that fact face-to-face I would have to believe would change a lot of things that we're doing. There's a certain wisdom that comes with facing death. God wants us to face death because that wisdom will help us to do the things that God wants us to be doing while we're still here. But anyway, here's the quote. It says, Children of terminally ill parents, they are amazingly well-adjusted and appear to have lifelong benefits from such experiences. Isn't that interesting? Children of terminally ill parents are amazingly well-adjusted and appear to have lifelong benefits from such experiences. Do you know why? Because death is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. It changes your life. Oh, by the way, I don't mean to be a downer here today or anything, but have you ever stopped to think about it? That you're terminal? I don't want to inject something that could ruin your day or anything, but you're terminal, I'm terminal, we're all terminal, and that's only okay if we take into consideration what God has to say. See, we're all terminal, and if that's the case, you'd think it would change the way that we're living our lives. See, that would give us the wisdom that we need to see life as God sees it. And number three, it also helps us to respond to others as God would desire. In verses 5 through 7, listen to what it says. It is better to listen to rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. It helps us to respond to others as God would desire that we do. See... None of us are real crazy about being rebuked or corrected or told that what we're doing is not right. How many of you, when you're, how many of you have gone through evaluations at your office? Evaluations. Huh? Hey, has, has your boss ever said, you know, you really need to change this area of, of your performance? Anyone ever said that? How many of you said, oh, thank you very much. You know, that's an area that I've been concerned about myself. 
And I appreciate you putting it out because then it just kind of validates what I've been thinking about myself all along because I've known that for a long time. And you pointing it out is just a matter of conferring and confirming that what is right is right and I need to change. Thank you very much. Right? Is that the way you handle it? Oh, yeah, all the time. Okay, well, you're an amazing guy, and that's why I like to have you here, so you can rub off on the rest of the people that are here, because the people sitting around you go like this. Does huh, he think he is telling me I'm so wrong with me? Huh? Nothing wrong with me. There, he got to look in the mirror at himself. Who's he think he is telling me that's what's wrong with me? Now, you're not saying it all the time. You're sitting there going. <laughs> and you walk out. Man, that's not, I don't have that problem. That's not my problem. I, I can handle criticism. I can, I'm open to that. Yeah, if that was something wrong, I'd change it. But I know it's not wrong, so I'm not going to change it. I don't care what he has to say. And just for that, I'm calling in sick tomorrow. <laughs> See, that's the way most of us handle that rebuke and correction that we get. Isn't that the way it is? I like what John Ehrlichman had to write. Listen to what he said. He goes, oftentimes the wise person who rebukes us is occasionally a judge in the courtroom says the law requires such officials to carry out a sentence against us when we've done wrong. While the penalty may be difficult to bear, but if we're wise, we can learn not only learn from it, but we'll be grateful for it in the long run. <clears throat> John Ehrlichman was one of the most powerful officials in the Nixon administration and uh, wrote in his book, Witness to Power, he wrote these words. He says, you know, when I went to jail nearly two years after the cover-up trial, I had a big self-esteem problem. I was a felon, shorn and scorned, clumping around in old, ragged old army uniform doing pick and shovel work out in the desert. I wondered if anyone thought I was worth anything. For years I had been able to sweep most of my shortcomings and failures under the rug and not face them, but during the two long criminal trials I spent my days listening to prosecutors tell juries what a bad fellow I was. <laughs> because then at night I'd go back to the hotel room and sit all alone thinking about what was happening to me. And during that time I began to take stock in myself. It says, I stayed about two weeks. Every day I read the Bible, walked on the beach, and sat in front of my fireplace thinking and sketching with no outline or agenda. I had no idea where all this was leading or what answers I'd find. Most of the time I didn't even know what the questions were. It says, I just watched and listened. I was totally wiped out. I had nothing left that had been of value to me. Honor, credibility, virtue, recognition, profession. Nor did I have the allegiance of my family. I had managed to lose that too. Since about 1975, I had begun to learn to see myself. I care what I perceive about my integrity, my capacity to love and be loved, and my essential worth. I don't miss Richard Nixon very much. And, well, Richard Nixon probably doesn't miss me much either. And I can understand that. I've made no effort to keep in touch. We had a professional relationship that went as sour as a relationship can, and no one likes to be reminded of the bad times. Those interludes, the Nixon episodes in my life, have ended. In a paradoxical way, I'm grateful for them. Somehow, I had to see all of that and grow to understand it in order to arrive at the place where I find myself now. The Bible says, as many sweet things are poison, so many bitter things are medicine. Isn't that fascinating? And I don't think it was any coincidence, by the way, that the reflection that he got and that he gained most came from the time that he spent in the Word of God. That he began to see himself as God saw him that he began to hear the things that were being said about him and seeing the truth of that. See, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. See, the Word of God, you know, God designed it for one thing and that is to take where you're at and move you to where He wants you to be. And sometimes the only way you can see it is a time where there's all hell's breaking loose in your life and like a John Ehrlichman, you're sitting in a hotel and you're hearing how many bad things that you did never believe in any of it until you read the Word of God and it says that what you did was bad and what you did was wrong and what you did is punishable and what you did wasn't right before God, but God's willing to forgive you and, and to, to cleanse you from it any time that you confess and agree with Him that it's right. See, wisdom helps us to respond to others as God would have us respond to them. Wisdom helps us when a person comes to you and says, Hey, Chuck, there's something wrong in your life. And it's not based on what I feel, and it's not the way that you part your hair, and it's not the clothes that you wear. Although, that's what my wife is for. But, but uh, what, what, uh, what he says is, hey, I brought people into your life that are going to hold you accountable to the truth of the Word of God. And what the Bible says is this about what you're doing. And I love you, and I care for you, and, I, and I'm going to take a chance on confronting you. And I hope that you see that that's the reason for it. 
Could you imagine what our, how our lives would be changed just in this group right here if we had a handful of people we were accountable to that would, that would correct us in areas where we don't line up to the Word of God instead of correcting us in the areas that have nothing to do with anything spiritually but always are dealing with the facade or the external? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Can I ask you this? Do you have people in your life that are brave enough to confront you when your life doesn't line up to the Word of God? Do you have people in your life that you're, you're willing to let into your life without immediately criticizing them or defending yourself when they call into your life something that's going on? See, most of us shelter ourselves from it. We don't want to have to deal with it. But God says a godly wisdom will allow Jeff to come to me and say, Chuck, here's what's going on. And I've been praying about it, and I've been seeking the wisdom of God about it, and I care enough about you to take the chance on just telling you what I see. Take it for what it's worth. Look at it yourself. Imagine, you know what would be the greatest thing if you want to help somebody out? I've got some friends that were struggling with some things. You know what the greatest thing to do is? Not to go and to tell them anything necessarily, but to go to them and say, you know what? I've been studying the Word, and here's what the God has to say about what you're going through. And let me give you the passages, let me give you the verses, let me give you the references. And then you take some time and you study them yourself, and you let the Spirit of God work in your life. Because really, it's between you and God, it's not necessarily between us. But I care enough about you that I'm willing to take the time to actually study the Word first, to pray about it, and then to get together with you and confront you on it. But here, I wrote them all down, jotted it all down. And here, just take this with you and you go ahead and you can read it and study it on your own. Would that be a wonderful thing to be able to do for a person if you really cared about them? The compassion that we've talked about. See, wisdom evaluates the circumstances of life from God's point of view. See, it helps us to respond to others as God would desire, which is to be open, to be teachable, to be able to be corrected all by the Word of God. Number four is it helps us react properly to present difficulties and disappointments. Certainly makes sense in light of what we've been talking about. Look at with me at verses 8 through 10. It says, The end of a matter is better than the beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? If you're going through some difficult times and you're going through some disappointment, I'll guarantee you, based on what we're reading here, that our natural response is going to be this. Number one, I'm angry. I'm angry because of what I'm going through. I don't deserve it, and even if I did deserve it, I don't deserve it to the degree that I'm getting it. I'll take some responsibility, but not all of it, and I'm going through a tough time, and I don't deserve to go through what I'm going through. And I'm angry. See, the end of a matter is better than the beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Why are we angry? Because we're going through a difficult time. And we don't like it. And we don't deserve it. So we get upset about it. So the first response, naturally, is we're going to be angry. Now the second response as we go through it is, look at verse 10. Hey, (laughs) I like it the way it used to be. I like it the way it used to be. I like the good old days. I like when I was happy. I like when business was going good. I like when I was making a lot of money. I like it when the kids weren't giving me the problems that they're giving me. I like it when my spouse wasn't giving me the problem that he or she's giving me. See, that's the days I like. I like those days. I want to live in the past. But you know what God has to say? Look at verse 10. Hey, you know what? If those are your responses, if you're angry over difficulties, or you're looking to live in the past, then you're missing the point. For it says, for it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. It's not from wisdom. That's not where those questions come from. Because wisdom is evaluating life and the circumstances from God's point of view. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote, who was a man who had wisdom and a godly perspective. He said this, We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, and a good time was had by all. (laughs) I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But, since it is abundantly clear that I do not, And since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. 
He says, the problem with reconciling human suffering, human suffering with the existence of a God who loves, is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love, and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us. See, what's the problem with difficulties and disappointments in life? Don't they usually revolve around us being the center of our universe? How can God, a God of love, allow this? Oh, wait a minute. Let's redefine what love is. How can God do that to me? Well, let's just... Def- wait a minute, wait a minute. See, those thoughts, the anger, the living in the past, comes not from the Word of God, but comes from the, the sin nature of man. And see, what C.S. Lewis is trying to say, and I'd like to just maybe make it personal for all of us, is that we need to do some redefining of what good and bad is, of what difficulties and trials are all about. Turn with me for a moment to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it in, in the, these particular lines, but when you, when you talk about difficulties, disappointments, and trials, James chapter 1. If you talk about difficulties and trials and the disappointments in life, and how to view them. Have you ever stopped to think for a moment why this admonition is in this particular passage, James 1? Look at verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's he talking about? Tough times, right? He's saying, hey, we're all going to go through tough times. We're going to go through disappointments. We're going to go through trials and difficulties. And these particular trials and difficulties are nothing that we do on our own. We fall into them. They're part of life. They just happen to us. And those are the kind we shake our head and go, well, I don't know how this happened to me. Well, don't try to figure it out because there is no explanation for it. It happened. You fell into it. That's the way it is. Now, how are you going to handle it? He says, well, consider it all joy when you encounter these various trials, these obstacles, these things you fall into, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that it may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's using it to exercise us spiritually, to stretch us out, to help us to gain a godly perspective of what's going on, to see the world from God's vantage point rather than from our own. But it's no coincidence, by the way, that the next verse is in there if you look at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you ever stop and think about why God says that in light of what he's teaching there? Because most of us lack wisdom when it comes to why we're in difficult times and why we're going through disappointments. So what he's saying is, hey, you're going through a tough time right now? Why don't you ask God for some wisdom and to see what he's trying to teach you in the midst of what you're going through? There's no coincidence that he challenges us right there to ask God for wisdom because he knows most of us don't know why we're going through what we're going through. And we're looking at it as I'm angry because I'm going through it and I don't like it and I'd rather live the way it used to be. And he's saying, wait, I want to, I want to help you grow spiritually. It's time that you ask me and I'll be glad to teach you. And I'm not going to criticize you. It says he'll give generously and without reproach, without criticism. I'm not going to criticize you because I already know you. And I know that you don't really understand what's going on and you need help to see it from my vantage point. Rather than get angry next time, let me challenge you to do this. Rather than get angry next time, rather than say, I wish it was the way it used to be, then why don't you say, Lord, show me what you're trying to teach me. Help me to see it from your vantage point. Let me see the benefits, the blessing that's going to come out of all this. Help me to see it and understand it and let me gain wisdom as I go through it. See, that's one of the values of wisdom is that we will begin to evaluate the circumstances of life from God's vantage point. Now, also, wisdom exceeds the advantages of worldly possessions and security. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7, we read this in 11 and 12. Wisdom, wisdom along with a, an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. 
talking about wisdom and how it exceeds the advantages of worldly possessions and security, what he's saying, it's real easy to get confused on all this. And Solomon knew because he had all the advantages of earthly security and possessions. He had everything you could ever want to have at the time that it was, was, that it was available. He had it all. And so the confusion is to say, well, you know what? The answer is to have more things. More stuff, that'll do it. If I just have more things in my life, then I'll be content, I'll be satisfied, life will be great, it'll be one, you know, it'll be wonderful. He says, now, wisdom along with an inheritance is good. Now, get this straight, there's nothing wrong with things necessarily. It's good to have an inheritance. It could be the greatest thing, and it could also be the most detrimental thing that ever happened to somebody with a pinhead. But when you get right down to it, that, it's, that it is an advantage to have an inheritance. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is the material world doesn't solve the problem of our heart. See, it never changes the heart. So what he's saying is wisdom along with an inheritance is good. And an advantage to those who see the sun. To those who look at life vertically and say, God, I need wisdom on how to handle this lump sum that I just got. I need wisdom on how to handle the material things that you've blessed me with. And for those who see the sun that have God's perspective of what to do with, that, with those finances or with that material possessions, then they're great. But it can be really a tragedy to those who look at life under the sun or in a horizontal. So he says, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. There's one thing that wisdom offers that things don't, and that is life. It is life. Proverbs 8.35 says, For he who finds wisdom finds life and obtains, obtains favor from the Lord. See, wisdom exceeds the advantages of worldly possessions and security. There's nothing on this earth that will give you security like wisdom will. And wisdom is the perspective that God has for the life in which we live. The third thing that Solomon encourages as far as the value of wisdom is that wisdom encourages our dependency upon God and His plan for us. He says this, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has been? In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as other, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. You see what he's saying? He's saying that, hey, guess what? You know what? How many of us actually take the time to consider the work of God? You see that? Consider the work of God. means to take some time to reflect upon it, to evaluate it for the purpose of coming to a conclusion, to uh, just kind of dwell on it for a little while. When you're going through a tough time, what Solomon's saying is, hey, why don't you just dwell on it just for a little while? Why don't you consider what's going on? What you can learn from all of it? What God's trying to teach you? How He's stretching you? Why don't you look into the Word and see what God has to say? And spend some time with Him. Some quality time trying to consider the work of God. And he says there are three things you'll discover. And the first thing is this, that you cannot change what God does. You can't change what God does. You see that? He says, who's able to straighten what He has been? Who's able to straighten what He has been? Job saw that. said, hey, God allowed him to go through various trials. God allowed him to go through some tragedy, quote, in his life. And you know what Job's conclusion was in the 42nd chapter? I can't change anything God does anyway. I can't change it. God does what He does, and He's allowed to do whatever He wants to do, because guess what? He's God. That's His rightful position to do it. So, wisdom helps you to see you can't change anything God's doing in your life. You can't change that at all. So you look at it and say, okay, what are you trying to teach me through all of it? And that's, the, that's, that's Job's conclusion is, God, what were you trying to teach me? There are some things that God's done we can't change, and that will cause us to depend on Him more and more. The second thing also, if you take a look at it, is, is that um, you cannot control your circumstances. You can't control your circumstances. You can try all you want, but things are going to happen to you that you can't control anyway. And so guess what wisdom teaches you? Wisdom teaches you to depend upon God. Depend upon God and His plan for you. You can't change a lot of things that are happening in your life. And the last thing is that you can't comprehend the future. It says God has made it that way as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. Folks, I don't care how sharp you are and how, how, how smart you think you are. You can sit down today and you just tell me what you're going to do in the next year. 
and the next three years, the next five years. You can sit down with the greatest business plans, with the wisest minds of finance. You can sit down and you can calculate where you want your company to be in ten years. You can sit down and calculate where you want your family to be in five years, in three years, in two years, in one year. But let me just tell you something. I'll bet you, you can't even calculate where you're going to be next Wednesday. Not that it's wrong to have a plan, for without a plan you have no direction, so you need to have plans. But the point of it is not to depend upon the plan, but depend upon God. Everything boils down to that. Is that wisdom will encourage us to depend upon God for His plan for us. You can't change anything that God's going to do in your life. You can't control the circumstances, and you can't comprehend the future. But there's one thing that's happening right now that if every Christian would just understand this and just apply it, and that is this. Guess what? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. You know what? And what's sad about it all is this. There are people who are trying to teach us that God does not allow adversity to come into our life. And the only reason it happens is because you don't have enough faith. And if you had faith, then it wouldn't happen to you. And the heresy of all of it is, is that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Because it doesn't get any plainer than this, does it? Guess what? In the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. And why does He do it? We need to redefine our definition of love. He does it because He wants you to grow spiritually. He wants you to conform into the image and likeness of His Son. He's going to let all these things happen in your life so that they'll produce endurance, and endurance will have its perfect result, that you will be mature in your faith. See, that's what God wants more than anything else, is for us to grow internally, spiritually, more so than externally with physical possessions. And the thing that Solomon saw at the end of all of his struggles and everywhere that he went was that God cared more about him spiritually than he did about all the goodies that he blessed him with. Not that he didn't bless him, because God made the day of prosperity as well too. But man, it sure is easy to praise the Lord when things are going good, isn't it? But you know what I find in my own life? When things are going good, no one wants to hear about my God. Because it's the same accusation that, that Satan made against God when he's talking about Job. He said, hey... Who wouldn't love you? Who wouldn't follow you when life's going great? If I had all that he had, I'd be praising the Lord too. In fact, I've been praying every night. I said, Lord, you give me what he has. I'll praise you every night, every day. See, but you know when people listen to you? is in the days of adversity. See, it said that Job blessed God with his lips. He praised him and never sinned one time. When business was bad, he said, hey... The Lord blessed me when times are good. He's teaching me some things when times are going tough. But I know one thing. He hasn't forsaken me. He hasn't let me go. And He's still there with me. And He's trying to teach me something. And if I'm wise, I'm going to ask Him what it is. And I'm going to ask Him how to deal with it and how to handle it. And I'm going to see that I can depend upon Him. And I'm going to look forward to it. And I enjoy it. Because I can see Him clearer when things are going bad than when things are going good. Because when things are going good, I, I like take a lot of the credit myself. After all, I'm working pretty hard and I got an education and I made all the right moves and these things are happening they're falling into place and man, I'm doing a great job. So I don't see God real clear when things are going good in my life but man, I can't miss Him when th- all hell's breaking loose and I'm on my de- knees looking up. Where yet? Like one, one man writes, Philip Yancey, he writes this. It's a, it's a book that he wrote. Where, where is God when it hurts? I like this because it has a lot to do with wisdom and how we want to look at life. It says, your world is dark, safe, and secure. You are bathed in warm liquid, cushioned from shock. You do nothing for yourself. You are fed automatically, and a murmuring heartbeat assures you that someone larger than you fills all your needs. Your life consists of simple waiting. You're not sure what to wait for, but any change seems far away and scary. You meet no sharp objects, no pain, no threatening adventures. You have a mighty fine existence. Then one day you feel a tug. The walls are falling in on you. Those soft cushions are now pulsing and beating against you, crushing you downwards. Your body is bent double. Your limbs twisted and wrenched. You're falling upside down. For the first time in your life, you feel pain. You're in a sea of rolling metal. There's more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head is squeezed flat. And you're pushed harder and harder into the dark tunnel. Oh, the pain, the noise, more pressure. You are it all over. 
You hear a groaning sound and an awful sudden fear rushes in on you. It's happening. Your world is collapsing. You're sure it's the end. You see a piercing, blinding light. Cold, rough hands pull at you. They a painful slap. <laughs> Congratulations, you've just been born. And he uses it as an illustration that when we begin to live with the lack of wisdom that God wants us to have, the problem is that we don't see the birth experience as anything positive. And we look at it as negative. You know, it's kind of funny, and I, and I think it's no coincidence in John chapter 3, Jesus calls it being born again. Because it's being born into a world that God has promised for us that we've rejected and that we've walked far from. And he says, if we just trust Him and we put our faith in Christ, that we'll be born again. But we'll have to go through that experience. And the experience doesn't seem like it's good. And that's the trials and the problems that we have in life. But you know what? The wisdom of God says this, For consider that God made the days of prosperity as well as the days of adversity. And when we come out the other end, and when we see the light, and we go through the tunnel, that we're going to be far more better for it. Because God's working on the inner man, and He's not as concerned about the frame that's going to turn back to dust anyway. You going through some tough times? Wisdom will enable you to see life circumstances from God's point of view. And it also will encourage our dependency upon God and for His plan. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we can trust Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank You that Solomon so aptly helps us to uh, see the value of wisdom. Lord, there's no question that many of us lack wisdom. We need to turn to You. You'll give it generously, above reproach. You won't criticize us. And in fact, if anything, You'll criticize us for not asking. It's there to, to be held. God, we just thank You for the difficulties that, that we go through. For those who rebuke us and who love us enough to correct us according to Your Word. God, I guess if anything is really impressed upon me, it's that we need to be spending more time in Your Word. We need that transformation, that miracle of a renewal of a mind that was bent away from the things of God, and now You've brought us into this light. God, help us to, uh, to see Your Word, to, to see the reality of it, and not to get hung up on the majority opinion, but to see things from Your vantage point. And Lord, more than anything, as we're going through tough times, may we never sin or curse you with our lips. But may we always praise you, realizing that naked we came from our mother's womb and naked that will return. And blessed be the name of the Lord. And may those around us see the relationship that we have as we declare your goodness through what they see as very difficult times. And we just thank you that you use people like us to draw people to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we'll look at the rest of that chapter and see four more advantages to godly wisdom.